And so we hope that you follow along as we go there. Is, uh, anyone, that anyone that needs a Bible, we just ask you to raise your hand and we'll bring a Bible to you um, so you can turn there with us, the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in chapter 10. As we think about discipleship, which is a, a, a theme that Mark is trying to nail down, what discipleship is, we think about following the Lord, because that's what discipleship is, being a student of Christ, following Him. I think Jesus Christ is easy to want to follow for many people because He's so amazing. Jesus Christ did things that were amazing. He said things that were amazing. He, he has so many uh, uh, moments where He drops this bomb and Minds are blown and people are astonished. And as we move through the Gospel of Mark, some of you have come up to me afterwards, not praising the sermon, but praising the fact that the passage, you've not seen it like that before. If you would just take time to sit and, and look at what Jesus is saying in these passages, it is oftentimes, it's mind-blowing and He amazes us. He is absolutely amazing. And so I think many of us, we come and we see an amazing Jesus and yeah, we want to follow that Jesus but oftentimes that amazement doesn't translate into life change. It's not difficult to come to church and learn about Christ and be amazed at Him. That The leap that often isn't made is the life change that's supposed to be a result of having been amazed by Christ. And so many times followers follow Jesus out of amazement, but not out of truly understanding what following is. We see that in Mark chapter 10, for most of your translations, it's probably the second to last paragraph, if they broke the paragraphs the same way as the ESV did here, starting in verse 35, or verse 32, I'm sorry, we're starting at 32. It says, and they were on the road, the disciples with Jesus, and they were on the road going to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. Why were they afraid? Well, they were gathering together to, and following Jesus to go to Jerusalem. It's not like they were going to Chicago, you know, they're, getting, they're not going to go shopping. They know what's awaiting them in Jerusalem. Jesus has already experienced stiff opposition his opposition already wants to kill him. They're plotting to kill him. Um, he's already throughout the gospel been telling people, quiet, don't tell anybody what just happened here. Don't tell anyone that I healed you. Don't tell anyone what I said. Because he doesn't want to accelerate his execution that he knows is coming. And he knows going to Jerusalem, it's the headquarters. This is the hub of his opposition. So they know what's awaiting Jesus in Jerusalem and Jesus isn't sluggishly going there. He's leading the way. Jesus was walking ahead of them. Come on, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. Like he wants to get there. That's amazing. That's amazing. He's followed by a ragtag group of people who half understand who he is, don't really understand. The Old Testament hasn't clicked for them yet. They're often confused. They're often lacking faith. 
he's taking them with. And he's leading them and going ahead of them. And they're amazed. They're amazed by that. But there's also another emotion, which is fear. It says that they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. Well, like I said, it's easy to be amazed by Jesus when you see what Jesus leans into, what Jesus accomplishes, what Jesus does. But when he says, now come on, let's go. I want to take you to the same place. It's hard to click your heels and go, yeah, let's go, if you really know where he's taking you. It's dangerous when you read all these blog articles on how to get more people into church. And if you were to summarize the article, it's um, make discipleship about fun. You know, have more games or give away prizes or don't talk about sin. Yeah, that's easy to follow. There's nothing to be afraid of on that model. But if you understand following Jesus correctly, there is something to be afraid of. It should put a lump in your throat. It shouldn't just be amazement. It should be amazement and then a lump in your throat. Because Jesus wants you to be amazing too. And amazing and great isn't what you grew up thinking it is. Amazing and greatness is not what the world says it is. It's different. And maybe after today's service, some of you have to radically change the trajectory of your life because you're chasing the wrong kind of amazing and the wrong kind of greatness. So we don't want to come in here and go, wow, Jesus is amazing, so humble. He's so amazing. But then we leave here and we're not humble. We need to follow where he goes, even if it's fearful. And so we need to ask ourselves, where is he really taking us? What's really amazing about him, and why does he want me to be like that? He takes the 12 again, and he begins to tell them what's going to happen to him at the end of verse 32. Taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, verse 33, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days, he will rise. Now notice he doesn't give one sentence to the killing and then four or five phrases describing the resurrection. Now, they're going to kill me, but I'm going to rise. You know, the tomb is going to be open. The guards aren't going to know what hit them. It's going to be glorious. An angel is going to announce it to you. You know, I'm going to pop up out of nowhere eating fish with you guys on the beach. You're going to be in a locked room and boom, I'm in there. You're going to be crazy out of your minds, but it's going to be awesome. No, no, no. What he lays on thick is the suffering part. He gives them the hope at the end, but what they don't understand is they want to skip to the glory part, and he's trying to explain that this is not going to be straight glory, straight into glory. This is going to come through a path of suffering and condemnation and being delivered up. He's going to be mocked. They're going to spit on him. He's getting very specific. They're going to take a whip and they're going to flog him. And it's not enough to just torture him and embarrass him and shame him, but they're going to kill him. This is Jesus' third prediction of his passion. It's this third passion prediction, third prediction of what he's going to suffer and what he's going to go through. The first one is in 831, the second one's in 931, and then we have it here again at 1033. 
And it's interesting the pattern that Mark gives us when Jesus predicts his suffering, the disciples, they don't know what to do with it, and then they act unbecoming of that prediction. For instance, in 831, Jesus announces what's going to happen to him, and then Peter pulls him aside. You remember that? He's like, hey, guys, stand there for a second. And he pulls Jesus aside to rebuke him in a corner. Hey, I love you. You're a great teacher. Don't ever say stuff like that again. And so then Jesus puts Peter in his place. Get behind me, because you're being satanic right now. You can't block the cross. That's what I'm here for. And if you think discipleship is about something else than bearing a cross, you've got it wrong. So then Jesus gives a lesson to the disciples on the heels of rebuking Peter, and he tells them, discipleship is denying yourself. Discipleship is taking up a cross. Discipleship is not denying a cross. Discipleship is embracing a cross and denying the life that would escape having to bear suffering for Christ. And then in 931, Jesus predicts it again. He stops them, gives them the prediction again, what's going to happen to him. And in the very next scene, the disciples are arguing among them about who's the greatest. It's the opposite. So then he gives them a lesson about being like a child. Do you remember that? You have to be like a child, like the least in the community, the least powerful, the, the, the least prestigious, the ones that don't have any leverage at all in society. You have to come like that if you're going to be in the kingdom. So now Jesus predicts the third time, and maybe you think three times a charm, right? Now the disciples go, we get it. Not really. At this time, it's not Peter. It's the other two that are kind of in that core inner circle. The sons of Zebedee or the sons of thunder, they were called. And most scholars seem to think they were called that given their personalities. Have you ever met thunderous personalities? I know a few. They're bold. So he predicts, and then verse 35, here's the discipleship failure again. Same pattern. And it's the pattern we just talked about. Amazed by Jesus, we don't make the leap. Our discipleship doesn't reflect our amazement. Verse 35, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. We want you to write us a blank check before we, ask you what we're gonna, before we tell you what we're going to spend it on. Dad, I want you to buy me anything I, I want. What do you want? You have to promise you're going to buy it first. Seems logical. Jesus doesn't fall into the trap, and he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Well, there's some positives here. They're being heavenly minded in terms of forward thinking, what eternity is going to be like. This is not my home. That's going to be my home. So what's it going to be like? I want to secure that not here. I can be poor here. There can be poverty here. There can be bad things here. But I'm thinking ahead in the future. That's great. They're also recognizing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that, that to sit at his right and his left is, is glorious because Jesus himself is glorious. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a man. He's not just a rabbi. He's not just a carpenter. So they get that. That's good. That's, that's pretty good Christology, right? 
They're not asking for money. They're not asking for a house. This isn't prosperity on earth that they're asking for. Those, those are good things. But it's motivated by um, self-appeasement. It's motivated by a, a sense of self-worth. And they ask them, one to sit on his right and one on his left. Those positions on the right and on the left, that they are uh, in the most prominent position in Jesus' kingdom, aside from himself. And it's like they're calling shotgun, but like forever. We call shotgun, I call right hand, I call left hand. Jesus, we just want to make sure you heard us call it first. We beat Peter to the punch. Peter, he was thinking about it though, but we called it. If you read the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew leads with the mom. The mom falls on her knees and begs Jesus that he would place her sons. So the sons of thunder brought mommy so, to, to beg for them. <laughs> they were probably planning it out. You know, Jesus really likes mom. Let's bring her. Mom, you lead out. And then we'll say, well, we'll ask first. Give us anything. Give us anything. And then if he pushes, you, you lead in. You know, it's, they planned it. It wasn't like they were just sitting around and it popped into conversation. They want prestige. They want position. They want power. Maybe not on earth, but forever. They want that position. Jesus tells them, you have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> you have no idea what discipleship is. You have no idea what, what, what you're asking. He says, verse 38, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you were asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? So he's, he's challenging their notion of how they would get to where they want to get. They want to get to this glory position and not understanding what it takes to get to a position of glory. How do you think I'm going to get to my throne? It's like a young kid that watches a war movie and at the end of the movie, the the soldier is awarded medals and these shiny medals and then he goes to the office to sign up to join the fight, to join the war. And he's asked, well, why do you want to join? Why do you want to join the army or whatever? I saw this movie and this guy's got these cool medals. I really want those medals. Can I get the purple one? Can I get the purple one? Can I get the blue one with the star around the neck? Can I get that? And the guy that he's asking lost a leg, lost friends that blew up right next to him. How does he feel when this young kid comes in? He's like, yeah, I saw this movie. Soldiering is really cool. You get these medals at the end. You know what it's like to wipe your friend's teeth off you? You have no idea what you're asking would be the appropriate response. Same here. They're like little kids calling shotgun, just calling the position next to Jesus. And they don't know what they're saying. They don't know what they're asking. So Jesus uses this Old Testament analogy about a cup that he's going to drink. And so the Old Testament usage of the word cup would be uh, something that God allots to you, something that is given to you by God. And it could be a cup full of joy, but most often it's a cup full of wrath and judgment. And to drink it is to take the wrath of God. 
And Jesus is saying, are you going to take the wrath of God with me? Can you do that? Can you drink that drink and bear the wrath of God? He uses the word baptism in a similar way. The cup that I drink, can you drink the cup? Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Verse 38. And that's fitting. If you think of baptism, going down into the waters, what, is the, what does the water represent there? Death. It's, it's judgment. It's wrath. And so when someone is baptized, they go down and they bear the wrath. It represents Jesus bearing the wrath for them. We're identified in his bearing that judgment and wrath of those floodwaters for us. And we come up out of the other side of that judgment clean because Jesus took the judgment for us and broke the barrier of death. So he's talking about this judgment and wrath that's going to be poured out on him. Can you take that heat? Can you drink that cup? Can you be baptized in that water? Are you going to take suffering and pain and death like I'm going to? And verse 39 shows the height of their theological awareness when they say, yeah, we're able. Could you imagine that? Can you bear the cross? One day will somebody share bread and drink in a big meeting room remembering what you did for them? Your shattered blood and body and blood? No. Your, your pain and suffering won't ransom anybody. You need to be ransomed. But they say, yeah, we're able. We're able. We're not afraid like the rest of these guys. We know what you're going to Jerusalem for, and we're able. And then... Interestingly, Jesus doesn't go, no, 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 you're not ready for this. He goes, oh, you're in for it. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. He doesn't mean that you're going to suffer to the level that he suffers. and that it's, that He's not saying your suffering is going to accomplish what my suffering accomplishes. But he's, he's lowering the cup down a notch and saying, There's, there is a version of my cup that you are going to drink. The cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. History bears out that James and John were killed. James first, John last. James is beheaded. John goes through torture. The cup that I drink, you will drink. He says, verse 40, but to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. There is a right and left, and there are positions of prominence in heaven, but I'm not sitting here with golden tickets and depending on who asked me first, who calls it, I give it to them. That, that's not how this works. And I think one of the reasons why that's left a mystery is because we'd be scurrying here, pushing each other out of the way of prominent eternal position. And Jesus is saying, let God work that out. Let the Father work that out. And you just do what you're supposed to do. You do what you're supposed to do and let God work out who goes where in heaven. But being heavenly minded doesn't mean trying to do what you can to get the bigger house than the person next to you, the biggest house on the street. Can I be a mayor in heaven? How do I secure mayor? Can I be governor? How about president? Can I be president? Can I rule Mars? Can Mars be mine? I call Mars. That, that's not what we mean by heavenly minded and don't think about earthly things. So let God sort that out. He's saying it's not mine to grant. And then he redefines greatness for them. Verse 41, the ten 
heard it, the other disciples heard it, and they began to be indignant at James and John. Now, do you think they were angry with James and John because they were like, how could you disrespect the Lord like that? Talking about suffering at a time where he's trying to get to Jerusalem. No, man, they're mad because they're stuck in the back seat. They called shotgun first. That's why they're mad. They beat them to it. How could you? How could you? We're all in this together. We are all a team. There should be six seats on his left and six on his right, and we should all just have it and, and split it evenly. And you two are with your mom, like, trying to get him in a corner, like, hey, how about one seat and one seat, and it's just us two right here. Well, they were indignant at that. So Jesus, it's lesson time, right? He's going to call them together again to give them yet another lesson. He predicts his passion. They don't know what to do with it. He has to give them a lesson. We've seen that in chapter 8. We saw that in chapter 9. And then now again on the third and final prediction, he's got to give them a lesson to adjust their view of discipleship and to redefine what greatness is and how to get it. So verse 41, uh, verse 42, Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. So he's like, look around you. The Jews weren't in charge of anything at this point. So just look around you. Look at the Romans, look at the barbarians, whoever you want to look at. Look at how the Gentiles rule this planet. The biggest, the baddest, the strongest, they're in charge. And they do whatever they want over the people that are too weak to take them over. That's the world's model. That's what greatness looks like out there. And that's what you're introducing here and it doesn't belong. I'm not going to Jerusalem to kick people out. I'm going to get owned. I'm I'm going to get beaten, flogged, killed. What's so great about that? He's saying that is greatness. 43, but it shall not be so among you. You're not going to be great like that. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. He's flipping it on its head. And I love that Jesus doesn't say, greatness is terrible. What a bad goal to be great. Your goal in life should be to be horrible. No, he's saying greatness. That's a great goal. That's great. He doesn't even call them, you know, stupid or ignorant or how foolish. He doesn't flip a table when they ask to be on his right and left. He just says, look, that's not mine or grant. There is a right and left, and there is prominence in heaven, and there will be reward in heaven. Reward is not bad. It's their definition of greatness that's wrong. They want greatness through cutting in line first, getting ahead of somebody else. Greatness would have been, hey, Peter, you know what? We're going to go up to Jesus with our mom, and we're going to do everything we can to make sure you get the right hand. And then Peter, if he was great, he would have said, that's not for me. Look, there's one of me. There's two of you. How about one on the left and one on the right? You guys do it. I'll get my mom to pitch in. Our moms will go together. But that's not the angle, right? The angle is, hey, let's cut in before Peter. And then how does Peter feel with the rest of the other nine guys? Ticked off. Now, oh, cool, man. I hope Jesus gave it to them. (laughs) That's really great for them. No. Me first. And Jesus is saying, me first is how the world does it. That's not going to be the case with you. Among you, the greatest person is the most serving 
person. It's the servant. The word servant there is the same word that we use for deacon, and back then it, it was a table waiter. It's not the owner of the restaurant. It's not the big wig that's sitting at the table. It's the one going, can I get you anything else? Did you like that today? The server. That's the greatest. And whoever would be first among you, verse 44, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave. He kind of ups it. The doulos. It could mean servant, but it's usually it's the term used of an indentured slave. You must be slave of all. Then verse 45, it's the model. You want to follow me? You want to be like me? You want to be great like me? That's good to be great like me. Not great like the world, but great like me is different, guys. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Ransom is a payment. Ransom is how, what you would use to bail somebody out of jail, to, to pay a captor to, to get the person captured out of prison, or to get a slave out of slavery, the payment to get a slave out of slavery. That's a ransom. And so Jesus is saying, I'm, just, I'm not just going to die a horrible, painful death to just kind of flex how much pain I can take. This isn't like a really hard, tough mutter to get a bandana at the end and drink a beer. Right? This is to accomplish something. This is to have an effect so that you don't have to bear wrath, ultimately. And so his death is going to be a ransom for many. Jesus doesn't have to do it. It's not that he's supposed to do it. He's not obligated to, to do it. But he does it because his greatness is not going to be in muscling up over everyone else. His greatness is going to be surrendering to people weaker than him so that he can save people weaker than him. That's the gospel message. And he's telling them, if you, want, if you believe the gospel and you're going to live the gospel, that's what your life should look like. My guys, all week I'm going, we know this already. Sometimes I have to preach a sermon. I'm like, we all know this already. There's no surprises. There's no like, oh, ooh. You're probably not taking four or five pages of notes on this one. I get it. I get it. You're supposed to be servant. But we don't act like it. We're still little kids calling shotgun. Some of you, I realize some of you maybe didn't grow up with that phrase. So I, he's a good, I mean, back in the Western, the, the Wild West, you have the stagecoach and bandits would come and try to rob your stagecoach and one guy's got the reins and he's whipping the, the, the horses. The other guy would ride shotgun, literally with a shotgun, to protect the stagecoach, right? And so eventually that's, you know, when you're driving, next to the driver's seat, that's shotgun, and everybody else has to sit in the back. And you remember growing up as kids, and you've got siblings, and you call, I call shotgun. You don't fight for it. There's no flipping a coin. You just, whoever calls it first gets to sit in the front, and everyone else got to sit in the back. And we never really outgrow that. We still do that as adults might be silly, but once in a while I'll be out to eat with a group of Christians, and everybody's pinkies start going up. I remember the first time I saw that, I'm like, what's going on, everybody? With a pinky going up. I don't understand. I was dead last because I didn't know what raising a pinky meant. I don't know what that is. What is that? And then everybody looked at me. Guess you're praying. <laughs> I was like, I'm what? 
you're praying. You don't have your pinky up. I was like, I didn't sign up for this. What are you talking about? Then when I became a pastor, they, there was no pinkies. It was just like, well, you're a pastor. Like, we'll just skip the pinky stuff. Just, you're a pastor, right? Oh, okay. Only pastors can pray. I think we never really outgrow it. And it's a silly example, but if we really understood greatness, first pinky to go up, I'll do it. I don't want anybody else at this table to feel uncomfortable praying. I don't want anybody else here to feel like they've got to say the right prayer. Hey, I'm not real good at praying, but I'll take it. I'll do it. That'd be greatness. Greatness would be, I call shotgun for you. I call backseat. Why would you do that? Well, because I want you to have shotgun. Would that blow your sibling's mind? They'd probably be like, all right. And <laughs> you keep doing it, they're just going to keep taking it. But Jesus is saying, if you really understood greatness, that's how you would behave. Now, if you go to a Christian book website, Amazon, and you just Google books, just stay within Christianity on marriage. You're going to see hundreds, thousands of books that are full of steps and things to remember and wisdom from Scripture. And it's not that they're a waste of reading. But if you just understood greatness, and rather than demanding you served, what would that marriage look like? How fast would that marriage change? If both people served each other instead of demanding from each other. Yeah, I really hate when she does this, but it's not about me. I'd really rather do this, but he likes that. I'm going to do that. It's when the one or both are demanding what they want, constantly calling shotgun at each other. No, I get first. I called it first. You had it last time. Two little kids just arguing about different things instead of toys and candy. It's something else. And suddenly you need marriage counseling. Counseling can help you. Counseling can help you. But if you're not ready to swallow this pill, counseling ain't going to help you. Counseling can't fix selfish. How many marriages would be immediately strengthened if we just followed Christ like this? This is going to be a great marriage. This is going to be a great marriage for our kids, a great marriage for other people to see. And if it's going to be great, what does greatness look like? Greatness looks like two people being slaves to each other, servants to one another. Start there. And the servant doesn't wait for the other person to serve first. That's not diakonos or doulos, servant or slave. The slave doesn't go, yeah, I'll serve you, master, as long as you do something first. He's not a slave then. The servant just goes first. Not waiting for someone else to earn it or deserve it or to start the conversation or to start the exchange of service to one another. What would parenting look like if we really understood what it means to be a servant? It doesn't say be a servant to everybody unless you have kids, then obviously they're your servants. Make them wash the dishes. Make them clean the house. They're your little servants. Why else did you have them? <laughs> now, before you get too excited, kids, you should clean the house, and you should clean your room, and you should help with the dishes. But what I'm saying to parents is 
How often do we want them to clean the house because if they don't clean the house, it makes me feel embarrassed that the house is messy when a guest comes over. And that's why I'm yelling at you to clean the house. It bothers me when I trip on your junk that you leave in the hallway. That bothers me, so I'm going to use my authority to get you to do what I want you to do because I want the hallway clear. That's different than, man, I would hate to see who you're going to marry. If you leave your house like that, your car like that, your desk like that, your life is going to look like that, and I don't want that for you. Clean it up. Now you're serving the kid. Teenagers, how much better would it be at home? And I know you're on your quest for independence and you haven't figured out yet. Your mind is racing way ahead of your timeline. You're not legally allowed to be out there on your own, but in your mind you are and your parents are kind of dumb and you've already figured it out. When you have kids, you're going to do it differently. You're going to chase a different career because that one was dumb. And you already have things figured out beyond your parents. You're so far beyond the wisdom of your parents. How much better would things be at home if you put your independence second and put honoring your parents first? How much less bickering? How much less difficult? How much less grounding? How much less we're going to take privileges away, arguments, fights? What would it look like to go on a road trip if siblings sitting in the back would just put each other first? What would that look like? What would that look like? See, this, this is something that's not complicated. We just find it hard to do. It's difficult to live it. So as we leave here, we're reminded that the gospel calls us into a redefining of what greatness is. And greatness is sacrificial service to others. That's greatness. Greatness is sacrificial service to those around you. It's not calling who's got things first. It's not waiting for someone else to go first. If we're going to follow Christ, we're not just going to sit there amazed that he is so humble. We are amazed. We're also going to have that lump in our throat, that little bit of fear, and go, whoa, I have to do that. I've got to bear a cross. I've got to take some hits and punches. I'm going to get flogged out there. And that's not a very popular message. Hey guys, we're going to go out, we're going to get spit on, laughed at, people are going to cut in front of you, and you're not going to lay on your horn if they stare back at you, you put your car in park and you get out and you go like this. You're not going to do that. You're just going to go, okay. You're not going to go on a 20-minute tirade to your children in the car about how those people are idiots, buffoons, you hate them. You're going to be a servant. You're going to act like a servant. Does that sound impossible? It is. When I wake up in the morning, my default mode is serve Lucas. Now, serve me breakfast. Get out of my way. Where are my shoes? Where are my doggone shoes? Right? It's me first. I need constant grace for change. Let's ask him for it. Father, we ask that you would use this time to help us ingest what we learn in your word this morning. And Father, help us to leave here, not just with a desire to follow in your amazing footsteps, uh, 
but understanding with a little bit of that fear that we can't do it unless you do it for us, unless you give us the grace we need uh, to do it, unless you empower us by your Holy Spirit, fill us and take us over. Make us into somebody else than we already are. Change our default mode to servanthood and sacrifice because we are not greater than our master. So we just want to emulate what you've modeled for us. You've ransomed us for this purpose, to live like you. Help us to do it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.